Hey guys, welcome to the Improvement Podcast, where the mission is to help young men develop their character, identity, and mindset in order to activate their potential and achieve their goals in life. And so on today's episode, we have on another special guest. His name is Zach Jurgensen. He is a podcaster and money management guru. Thank you for coming to the show, Zach. Yeah, no, uh, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, you and I talked a little bit before we got on. And again, when he says money management guru, I don't want you guys to tune me out because I want to be the guru in your life that teaches you how to manage your own money. I do not want to be the person that manages your money. I'm all about empowering you to manage your personal finances in order to design the best life for you. Thank you for clarifying that because I'm sure that a lot of the people that are listening to this right now might not necessarily be in a situation to where they could hire somebody to come in and manage their money. Most of the guys are like 18 to, I guess you could say late twenties. And so they probably wouldn't be necessarily target market for anyway, for someone that was doing that, but nonetheless, they could definitely take some of this advice that you're about to be sharing. Yeah. And to even take what you said a step further, there's a segment of my pop, my age bracket, you know, older age brackets, younger age brackets that they really do want to fundamentally learn and understand this stuff. And if you can get to that point, you don't need to worry about things like uh, hiring a money manager and, you know, how many, how much are the fees going to be? And are those fees going to add up to end up, end up adding up to be hundreds of thousands of dollars down the road when you're 40, 50, 60 or whatever. Um, so I would really just, you know, reinforcing that as well. No one says you need to have a money manager. You, there is enough information on Google, um, on, uh, you know, th through just the age of information where you can seek and understand things just as good as someone else. All right. And one thing that's interesting to me is that just from learning from your background, you're a Marine Corps veteran. And so you didn't necessarily go like a, a finance type track. However, now you're in this money management area where you have the, the DIY wealth podcast and everything that you do, where you talk about these sorts of topics. What would you say got you into that? Yeah. So, uh, I was a kid going nowhere pretty fast in life, grew up in a pretty rough household, um, victim of child abuse, had to testify against a parent in court. Um, religion was used to weaponize, uh, me and my brother to hate my father, um, because of certain preferences he had. And, uh, it just wasn't a good time. Um, and so because of that, there's a lot of anger and trauma and stress, you know, as a kid and just wasn't applying myself to things in life, lots of frustration. And as a kid, sometimes you don't know how to deal with that stuff. So I ended up joining the Marine Corps, um, just out of pure realization that if I don't leave this town, I'm going to be stuck here forever. Um, so joined the Marine Corps and, um, Still wasn't really applying myself to things in life, but after we lost one of the guys and a bomb dog, um, that's when kind of like things hit me and I was like, holy shit, like my life is fragile. I don't have tomorrow guaranteed for me. I need to start applying myself to things. So realized, you know, moving out, um, I got one more year left in the Marine Corps. I need to figure out what I want to do because I definitely don't want to do this anymore. So I just started picking up books, journalism books, photography books, uh, science books, and I landed on finance. A real simple read. It's called The Little Book on Big Dividends, 97 pages, the simplest read because I don't know. I didn't know anything about finance stuff at this time. Um, and it really just resonated with me. And I ended up investing, you know, my first couple shares in Bank of America at the age of 21 after reading this book and saw 
when the market closed, I had $4.14 more than I started the day with. And that clicked in my head and led to this whole journey that has gotten to me where I've gotten, realizing if I can just forego a little bit of immediate gratification and push this money into things that make me more money, it eventually hits a tipping point where I no longer need to actively work for money. Okay, I respect that. And I appreciate you going deep into your story and giving the listeners a little bit of background information about you. And so one question I would ask to kind of follow up on that is, would you say that you know, just out of you looking at all these different subjects, finance just happened to catch your interest the most out of all of them? Or would you say that it was something in your upbringing where let's say maybe it was a lack of money or something like that that made you kind of, I guess, focus in on that? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's actually one that's never been proposed to me up until, you know, this episode. And, you know, as soon as that started, the second half of your question started exiting your mouth, I think it definitely wasn't so much of an interest. It was more of a scarcity mindset. And Mm -hmm. I'm tired of living paycheck to paycheck. I'm tired of blowing my paycheck. I don't have an ability to lean back on anyone that heavily um, at this point in life. And so I really, whether I want to learn this stuff or not, I really need to organize it. But I think because I picked up a very simple book on it, and I didn't overcomplicate the process for myself, I think that's what led to a continual relationship with finances with me. Okay, okay. And so the reason why I asked that is because whenever you're kind of telling your story, at least that's how I relate it, because uh, you could say that I kind of had a similar path to get into uh, what my degree is and, you know, getting into managing my own money. And so growing up, my parents definitely were not financially responsible. And as a result, that led to a lot of different struggles here and there that would, that would happen sometimes, even when they were making decent income, just not having the skills to be able to keep some of that money and also put it in places where it can work for you led to us running into tough times whenever the financial situation would change. And kind of same thing with me, like you were talking about not knowing how to manage your money, being undisciplined and ended up living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, That's pretty much the story of like my whole college career, I guess you could see. I used to do like a a sales job that was all commission-based. And so I made really, really good money with it for a college student. But the thing is, I would be blowing these thousands of dollars before I could even like actually put them towards something that could help me. And so it kind of resonated with me when you said that. Yeah. And, 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 And that's, you know, to people listening to this episode and absorbing what you and I are saying, it's okay to not know everything and not have everything figured out and come to someone and say that and admit that with the intention of walking away with some type of piece of knowledge from it. Like, I think there is a huge stigma on talking about personal finance in America and, you know, you're not supposed to talk about it or it's considered rude or it's considered whatever it may be, but how do you get better at managing your personal finances? If you're not talking about it, you don't. There's no ability to do that other than reading a book. I agree you can read a book, but why not? Let, let's enhance that. Let's enhance that by having a real conversation or asking a question to someone you really uh, uh, feel is a real human being that you know and you hear and you know they're growing and building something. Um, and obviously you have the same exact goals I have. It's just mirrored to through a different um mirrored through different uh, messaging because you have different alignments with whatever core beliefs you want to grow and build. 
and, and change lives. It's literally the same thing, but for whatever reason, we, and I think it's the same thing with some trauma stuff too, especially in, 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 in society with men, what are you supposed to do? Shut up. Don't talk about it. Don't cry. That's a sign of weakness, dot, dot, dot. Between that and personal finances, I think it's very been much been a hush hush situation generationally. And I think we're finally starting to emerge out of that. Yo, to kind of tie onto that, when you brought up men, a one thing about it is that it seems as though a lot of men feel like they need to figure out everything on their own. And that probably leads to a lot of those people not wanting to ask for advice. And so, you know, that pride leads you to where, you know, you already have these bad habits that you're that have you in a rut and you don't necessarily know how to get out of them. But at the same time, you're too prideful to go ask the people around you in your community uh, who are doing well at those things to help you. And so it's like something has to budge. And so I like that you brought that up. Yeah. I, you know, just again, tacking onto what you said, it's just, if that's the cycle you get caught in, it's just a downward spiral. So rather than continuing the downward spiral, let's, let's shake things up. Let's, let's break the mold. Let's think a little bit differently or attack something from a different angle. And if that means going and talking to someone and worst case scenario, they do belittle you or make you feel stupid or dumb. That's someone you don't want to go and talk to anyway, regardless. Like that's something I definitely struggled with growing up as a kid learning too. Um, well, you know, certain teachers and even my parents, like they did not foster uh, an environment that enticed or created a positive environment to want to learn. And so that is something I am huge on. Like, you can come to me with some of the most basic questions. And if three other people are listening and they're snickering on the side, I'll call out all three of those people snickering on the side because at one point in time, they didn't know anything either about anything. We're all born into this world. And none of us know nothing like, and you're going to judge or label someone because they don't know a certain piece of information that you acquired because you guys have different lives and different perspectives and different things growing up. So that's something I definitely want to hammer home too. Like, you know, if you, what's a Roth IRA, what's a 401k, how do I start a retirement account? Like in your mind, you may think these are stupid questions, but they were questions I had to go find too. And there is no such thing as a stupid question when it comes to this stuff for me. Honestly, that type of mindset that you're mentioning where people make fun of people or discourage them from I guess being vulnerable or admitting that they're ignorant of something and asking in a way it damages communities because if you have this underlying culture in your group or community where it all just needs to be on you, uh, you shouldn't be asking questions. That's something that's frowned upon. It just leads to a bunch of ignorant people because no one's working together collectively to build anything, learn anything to make their community as a whole better. They're just worrying about themselves, just worrying about being individuals. And so I, I think you definitely make some good points with that. And something else that I wanted to kind of touch on is you mentioned the thing about shaking it up and everything and giving people opportunities to be able to figure some of these things out. And so for those guys that may be in a community like what you're talking about, where they might not have people they can go and ask for advice, what would you say were some of the first steps that you took or maybe the first steps you recommend for young guys, college age to, you know, early, mid, late 20s uh, to do to make sure they put themselves in the best possible financial situation? Sure. Well, I mean, for starters, if you're listening to this right now, obviously you can always come to me, but let's assume that you don't have that. Um, what I essentially did is I just started picking up very simple to read books. So what I would do is I'd go to Amazon 
and I'd look at reviews on books and, you know, it would take some time, but I would try and find a couple of reviews on a book where it was just like, even if you don't know anything about finance is a super easy book to read, blah, blah, blah. And then maybe I'd click on another Amazon book and, you know, uh, you know, a couple comments down, you know, I think this is a good book. If you understand X, Y, Z and dot, 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 and ABC, if you don't understand those things, maybe it's a book you put on the back burner and try and try and uh, absorb later. And so, really just trying to identify those more simple reads. And then as you start, you know, after, let's say you've read 20 easy financial books and you've acquired a good beginner base of knowledge. Now you move into these intermediate uh, books. And just because you're picking something up too and reading it doesn't mean you have to agree with everything with it either. Like when I read a book, I don't try and agree with everything with it. I try to find the one or two things that for whatever reason really resonate with me and stick out with me and extract that from that book mm -hmm. and then compound that on the things that I'm learning. Um, some people like to sit in front of a computer monitor and day trade all day. Statistically, that's not going to be a winning strategy because it's just you don't have a magic eight ball. You don't know how to predict the future. Plus, I want my time. So for me, I subscribe huge to the idea of investing in certain sectors, not all sectors. There are 11 sectors in the stock market. And also these new things that are emerging called thematic funds. So you can have a artificial intelligence themed fund and a esports and global video games themed fund. So, and that stuff I can get into on a much later date, but my whole philosophy and everything I just explained to you right now did not come to me overnight. And it took many, many years in order for me to generate this. Um, outside of that, I would just try and find people that are wanting to learn and do the same things as you. And then finally, you're just going to have to just take action at some point in time. When I first invested my, when I bought 10 shares of Bank of America, I was the whole day, I was watching my money go up and down, up and down. And when it was down, I was cussing. I was mad. I was angry at myself. Like, why did I do this? I didn't know what I was doing. And it was a small amount of money. It was nothing insane. But then when I saw it up, I was cheering and winning. And yes, I, I'm so glad I'm winning. Th these are emotions you're going to have to control with small amounts of money. Otherwise, you're going to fail big time when you're managing your own money. And that money has grown to hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that leaves me with two questions. One, I guess you could say that's more of a personal question and then one to follow up the last one. And so you mentioned the thematic funds and that sparked my interest because it sounds similar to ETFs. What would you say is the difference between that and an ETF? Yeah. So a thematic fund can be a mutual fund or an ETF. So um, and again, this is just common, confusing stuff that I didn't know either until I took the time to really dissect and understand it. So a mutual fund is basically only going to trade. So a mutual fund and an ETF can have tons of companies within it. So an ETF can have 50 companies within it. A mutual fund can have 50 companies within it. The only really important difference you need to understand on ETFs versus mutual funds is mutual funds can have loads. Okay. And we can get into what loads are, but basically it's an upfront fee. So you want to find mutual funds that have no loads. There's mm -hmm. no reason you should be paying a loaded fund. Um, and uh, in ETF, uh, they don't have these loaded funds. So, but with an ETF, it trades like a stock. So throughout the day, let's say we're looking at the same, let's say we're looking at a video game ETF and a video game mutual fund. Okay. The ETF, will trade and change values throughout the day because people can hop in and out of it like a stock. Right. Because a mutual fund, 
it's and again same video game mutual fund that we just talked about but because it's a mutual fund you hop into it you're only able to purchase it at the end of the day when the nav has um settled and so because of that some people subscribe to the idea that mutual funds have a truer value line when it, when associated with their price points because people aren't able to trade and hop in and out of it based on emotion throughout the day there is people that want to sell it that day and there's people that want to buy it at the end of the day all the sellers sell all the buyers buy that's it transactions are done whereas with an etf you got people hopping in and out of it at 132 233 34 and because of that sometimes there's price discrepancies and there's an argument that there isn't as true of a value there because people are trading on emotion, not on the actual price point based on the value. Oh, okay, I see. And so from what from what I'm understanding, when you talk about the thematic funds, I'm guessing that's more so on like the mutual fund type side, because I know I used to trade uh, and do like oil and gas ETFs. And so the thing about it is that, you know, it has, I guess you could say it's a theme in a way. And so it just yeah. kind of made me think about that where I was wondering what the difference was. Yeah. So, and I'm glad you brought that up. That's a good example. So oil and gas, generally speaking, if you're in an ETF like that, it could have been a thematic fund. I don't know. We'll never know. But generally speaking, when you're talking about oil and gas, what sector are you talking about? Energy. That's mm -hmm. one of the 11 sectors that exist in the market. So maybe you were in an energy sector ETF, energy sector ETFs and energy sector mutual funds. They both exist. Okay. Um, so with I'm trying to think of a good example. So for instance, you know, I brought up the, uh, I'll, I'll just bring up one of them I'm invested in. I'm invested in Hero. It's a uh, esports and global video games thematic fund. That is the theme. So mm -hmm. whether the company is building game processing units, even though that's the industrial sector, NVIDIA is creating these computer gaming chips. So that is going to get put into this thematic fund. EA Sports is a software company. That is, that is a technology sector business, but because it's video game related, it gets pushed into this thematic fund of oh. esports and video games. Does that make sense? So yeah, with these thematic funds, you're getting exposure to different sectors, but the underlying theme, regardless of what sector they're in, is dot, 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 whatever that theme is. Artificial intelligence, self-driving cars, Web 3.0. Uh, cybersecurity. These are all themes that require different sectors in order to create the final product that is. Okay. I think it just connected now. So the way I was looking at it before is I was looking at something that was just sector related as opposed to the thematic fund, which goes broadly across multiple different sectors. Okay. Correct. Yep. And so, you know, from a, from a timeline perspective on ages of these investment vehicles, Thematic funds have existed for a much shorter time than sector funds. But, you know, do I know what the track records are going to look like on this? Not really. But if you're looking out into the future, a thematic fund based around artificial intelligence or cybersecurity, it's probably going to perform pretty well, especially with how much time we're spending in front of a computer with the advent of Web 3.0. Mm -hmm. This Mark Zuckerberg stuff with the metaverse rebranding thing, like right. you're telling me artificial intelligence themed ETF is probably going to do terrible. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to bet for that, not against that, you know, and these are, you know, investment philosophies that I've subscribed to. And because of it, you know, I've done very well, you know, you don't have to agree with everything I'm telling you to do. And I don't want you to, I want you to go cross verify and double check because that's how you appropriately make, that's how you appropriately end up managing your money. 
don't take anyone's any one person's thing at face value or or law or religion. Question it. Always question it. Okay. Gotcha. And so I appreciate you kind of breaking that down. And so I was able to connect the dots on that. And the second question I had that I mentioned before is, I guess, going a little bit on like the simpler side, because I would imagine that a lot of people that are looking for money management advice, when it comes to the stocks and things, this is probably like a, a secondary priority, you could say, you know, they probably want to make sure that they take care of their basics first before they get into the stuff like what we're talking about. And what I would ask about that is what would you say is the uh, first step or the most important step that young guys should take to uh, have financial stability? Buy a piece of real estate, hands down. It's the best thing you could be doing for yourself. Okay. Or maybe to, um, maybe to reframe the question. Oh, sure. Sorry. Yeah, for, maybe I, maybe I misunderstood the way what, what you, yeah. yeah, go ahead. So for guys that are, let's say just moved out of the house and are trying to get financial advice for how to manage their money while they are working, let's say their job at pizza hut, or maybe mm-hmm. working their first mm-hmm. job out, out of college or something, making 50, 60,000 a year, what would you say is the best piece of advice that you could give them in that position, real estate, they might be a little bit down the road, but sure. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. So the, yeah, like, okay, sorry. Uh, different frame of reference. I, do I still think real estate is important? Yes. Oh yeah, of course. Definitely important. Of, is it 60% of my net worth and, you know, being able to buy something and, and even if it's your primary home, renting out the two rooms, so you cover the mortgage and you got money coming into your pocket. Now you're really cooking with, with, with tons of fire at a young age, but to, to your point, yes, maybe a little bit down the road, a little bit more money, hands down. The most important thing you could be doing in the scenario you just painted is understanding and committing and learning how to use a budget, a budget. Okay. Okay. And people hear this word and they all of a sudden just think that their life is limited. And you need to just reframe what a budget is. A budget is not a limiter in your life. It is an organization tool used to organize, clarify, and envision the future you want. And when you talk about a budget in that, how much more empowering is that? But I think there's been this negative connotation with budgets that like, oh, now I can't go out and eat. Now I can't go out and drink with my friends. Now I can't do dot, dot, dot. It's the budgets is not about, I can't do dot, dot, dot. It's about understanding, organizing, and clarifying. I understand these are the things I want to do, but this is the life I crave more. And in order to do that, I need to organize these things and start investing and living on less than I earn. Okay. And so dive into this a little bit. Most of the time when people hear about budgeting, uh, they kind of frame it in a very simplified way where it's just, okay, save more money than you spend. But let's kind of get into some of the strategies and things that they can implement to actually make it to where it works. Because one thing that I've noticed from doing my own budgeting is that if you don't actually have different goals for, let's say, each area where you're spending, it makes it pretty tough. So let's let's hop into that. What are some things that pop into your mind as far as tips or strategies? Um. So this doesn't really parlay into the budgeting thing, but I will mention it since we're kind of, you know, with an earshot of it, mm-hmm. pick up a side hustle and a secondary income. Like, I don't care what it is, just do it and don't touch that money. Act like it's money you didn't even have and only spend the money you have from your primary source. So for instance, I help, you know, I have a Patreon account and I, I help some people with one-on-one coaching and budgeting and investing stuff. And I helped this girl identify, she was working a secondary job. I forgot what she was making hourly. 
but I ran the numbers out and I was just like, there are so many other things you could be doing and making more money and getting more of your time back. And so she ended up landing on dog sitting or dog walking. And, you know, it only took up a couple of hours of her day. She wasn't mm-hmm. stuck behind a counter making $12 an hour. And she ended up making twice as much. And she got four hours of her day back. Like, so identify side hustles that'll bring in a little extra income, pour that into investments, but don't, I think when people hear side hustle and stuff like that too, they're thinking, Oh, I got to work another 20 hours on top of the 40 hours I'm working. No, 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 no. When I say a side hustle, find something five, 10 hours where you're making an extra 150, 200 bucks. And those do exist out there in this gig economy. Now, reverting back to your original question with the budgeting, one of the apps I use is Truebill. I would highly recommend getting on that. It'll automatically identify subscriptions that you're paying too much for, and it will mm-hmm. negotiate them for you. It's a fantastic app. True Regarding bill. the Truebill, yes, uh, it's, a, it's a great app. I use it to this day, um, and you'll link your checking account or credit card or whatever you're using, and it'll automatically flag, hey, you're paying too much for your Verizon bill. You're paying too much for dot, dot, dot. And then you can literally go in there and click it and ask for it to manage it. It, it will try and auto negotiate for you and get you a lower payment on a subscription. It's crazy. And it helps you organize those subscriptions too. That would be the other biggest thing I would advise people doing when you're getting ready to start a budget, go in, look at all of your transactions over the past two, three, four, five months. Where are the recurring transactions happening? What are they? And can you live without them? We definitely have tons of subscription-based models today. Like you remember direct, how old are you? 24. (laughs) You remember DirecTV? Did you have DirecTV? Yeah, it still exists. It or still I think exists. It might be a different name now, but so so DirecTV when I was growing up, it was like 110 bucks a month, and you got 500 channels or whatever. Okay, mm-hmm. that that's basically gotten disbanded because of the advent of Netflix, things like that. But because we have Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Scary Channel, whatever, like by before you know it, people already have eight subscriptions now, and they're back up to 80 bucks a month. So like identify what are the subscriptions I really need in my life and what are the ones I can do without. That's an easy way to free up cash flow every month for yourself. And then finally, to your point, set those goals. What are the goals that you want to set? One of them should always be investing, whether it's 10 bucks, 25 bucks, 50 bucks, a hundred bucks, just start doing something. It will pay so many dividends down the road. You'll be so happy you did it, but then also reward yourself, you know, I want to go on a vacation. I want to do a beach trip to California. Cool. That's a goal that requires you to save $600. How are you going to get there? Start reverse engineering it. I need to get a side hustle. I need to save XYZ. I need to get rid of this subscription. Now I can go do this California thing. Okay. All good stuff. All good stuff. And uh, you mentioned Truebill. That's something I'll have to actually try and use because I never used that one before. And I definitely have a lot of subscriptions, not only just for my own personal stuff, but even for the podcasting and all that. So that's definitely something I would check out, but yeah, they can, it can get out of hand as you know, between yeah. podcasting subscriptions and personal subscriptions. I mean, I'll do an audit of that. Another quick little hack thing I do that you guys may or may not want to do is once a year, I'll cancel my debit card. I'll cancel my debit. I'll cancel my credit card just in case I missed anything. And you would be amazed how many people instantly email you and reach out to you? Oh, we couldn't process payment. Oh, we couldn't process payment. And then you're really able to just go, oh yeah, I totally forgot I had that. I'm axing that. And then you can just cancel stuff and you get your new card. Yeah, you got to reconnect some stuff here and there. But again, some people like doing that. Some people don't, but it's it's a very easy way to really cut a lot of fat out of your life. Yeah, something to think about. 
And I know one app that's worked pretty well for me when it came to my own budgeting is Mint, just because you can break the stuff down into dollar amounts like per sector of what you're spending. And then it gives you like the trend lines for your income as opposed to like what your expenses were every month. And so that's been one that's worked extremely well for me with the notifications you get on there and everything. And I'm not sure when you started using Mint. I was, I remember starting using it years and years and years ago when it was just like a very Mm -hmm. crude instrument and I hated it. But with, you know, the improvements, I'm sure that that app has gotten way better. Um, I ended up trying that one. Didn't really like it. I tried uh, Dave Ramsey's Every Dollar. Um, The only reason I didn't like that is it would not stay connected to my checking account. So every time I logged in, I would have to reorganize all of my transactions every single time. So I was just like, I'm out on that. I, I think he works better with other bank accounts, but I have USAA and it just was not working. Um, and so I ended up finding Truebill. I think I pay like 29 bucks a year for it or something like that. But mm-hmm. again, fan, whether you use Mint, whether you use what I'm using or you go, or you choose to use something else, just get on something that creates some type of financial accountability. I think that's what you and I are driving home at this point. Okay, got it. So that should be pretty easy to understand for the guys then. And uh, one thing you also mentioned is investing. And so I guess for people who are a little bit more finance savvy compared to, you know, general population, for a lot of people, it's kind of scary because they see it as gambling, even though it's a lot different. And so for those people that want to get into investing, but are kind of scared to take that first step, what is some like entry level advice that you would give? Yeah. So for anyone that's just really too scared to do this stuff or doesn't really want to focus on it too much, but still wants to have control of their money, I would just say invest in an S&P 500 index fund. Mm -hmm. And so for people that don't know what index funds are, they're a fund that indexes a certain benchmark. The benchmark generally people talk about when they're talking about the stock market is the Standard & Poor's 500. And it is 500 companies across all 11 sectors. Um, They do certain certain market cap and weighted... I can't remember the weighted thing, but I, they, it's certain market caps across 11 sectors, 500 companies. So basically, it's the entire stock market. When, people, when you hear people talk about the S&P 500, they're talking about the total stock market. You can buy things like SPY, which is a, uh, basically has fractional shares of the S&P 500, and it literally performs the same as the S&P 500. You're not going to do better than the market. You're not going to do worse than the market. You're going to be the market. And so being the market is definitely better than being worse. And being the market is definitely better than taking on the risk of trying to be better when you don't have any good knowledge base about this stuff. So for people that, again, they want a really lazy portfolio, but they do want to get in the game and they don't want to do terrible, just be the market. And to be the market, invest in SPY. So yeah, you, that's the Warren Buffett advice. And so, you know, it's good advice. And funny thing that I heard, so I learned this back in school and it, it could be false, but what we learned from the textbook anyway, is that in most cases, the S&P gets better returns on average yes. than a lot of hedge funds. Correct. Yes. Uh, statistically, you know, there will be people that perform better than the market, mm-hmm. unarguably, but statistically that falls pretty out of favor with you. Now, Am I tinkering a little bit with that? Absolutely. Because I have a little bit more of a knowledge base. I'm looking at everything and has my portfolio performed better than the S&P 500? 
Yeah, because I've cherry picked sector funds that don't perform as well over a 10 year average annual rolling return. And, you know, I'm starting to get into some more technical talk right here. If it's something you're interested in, want to have more of a conversation about, we can. But if you're someone that just wants to get in the game and start understanding things while still making money, just like you said, the Warren Buffett advice and, and, and to your point, uh, trying to cherry pick and stock pick when you don't have good foundational knowledge to identify what a good stock is, even if you do have that knowledge, statistically, index funds will still probably do better. So again, yeah, just reinforcing that, like you were just be the market. All right. So some pretty solid advice. We've touched on some really good stuff. And so now that we've touched on the money side of things, something else that I wanted to ask you just about you personally is from getting all of this stuff handled when it came to your finances and developing multiple streams of income, how would you say it affected your quality of life? You know, you, we could be talking about like your mental health, uh, just uh, things that you were able to do by gaining that freedom that probably came from having extra income. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So now we're going to start diving into a little bit more of philosophical talk. And again, what's good for me and what works for me doesn't necessarily apply to you because we're all different creatures with different brains. Um, leading up to becoming, having a net worth of a million dollars, you need to understand it's all I focused on in my entire life because I wasn't close to my family. I didn't have things to lean on Marine Corps, work, 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 work. I didn't do family holiday stuff. You know, it's just literally all I focused on. The reason all I focused on is again, probably some fear base out of it, as we talked about earlier in the episode. And the other thing was I started getting good at it. So it's like, why not? I'll just keep doing this. But I was tying certain emotions and things I was going to expect to be feeling once I hit a certain number. As I got closer to that number, I still wasn't feeling happiness. I still wasn't feeling joy. I still wasn't feeling contentment. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? What is going on? And that started scaring me because it's like, if I don't feel it now, am I ever going to feel it? And so that's important piece of information. Number one, do not praise to the altar of money. Do not praise to the altar of success and capital of uh, capitalism and achieve, 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 and do and do and do and more and more and more. It is exhausting. It is soul crushing. And it is not aligned with probably a majority of the population, but that's what we're pushed. We're pushed to be successful. We're put, and I'm not saying don't do anything, don't achieve anything in life, but I'm saying don't do it under the lens and ideologies of what capitalism, of what your parents, of what you think other people think about you, do whatever form of success you want in life based on what you want, not the external pressures, the generational pressures, the economic pressures that we are so forced to think and do just by growing up and existing in America and Western culture. Um, so I was approaching that and, you know, wasn't getting it. And that's when I really started sitting in my thoughts and identifying like, what do I want in life? Like, what is enough for me? Because there will always be more objects. There will always be a faster car. There will always be a bigger house. There will always be a bigger piece of land. There will always be more designer clothing. There will always be dot, 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 dot. And if that's all you're ever focused on, you will just perpetually keep working in life and you will never feel satisfied. So pulling back off of this consumerism and marketing and identifying what do I really want in life and understanding once you have that, now you can identify a financial number for yourself that you can work towards. 
And now once you have both of those, that is truly a wealthy place to be in life. But I didn't have that up until about a year and a half, two years ago. I like how you broke it down. And the sad thing about it is that a lot of people don't get a chance or I guess develop the awareness to come to that same realization that you were just talking about. The focus for you know, pretty much your whole young life, your whole working life, and maybe even after is money, 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 but they never do actually get to the point to where they can make that switch to focusing on themselves, focusing on their mind and their own happiness. Yep. And so I'm glad that this is a point that you brought up because, you know, I don't have a net worth of a million dollars, but it was a, a realization you could say that I came to whenever I first started working full time, you know, 22 years old, pretty much my whole life growing up with all the instability and everything. The goal had always been go to college, uh, get a degree, get a good job. And then that way in 30 years, you'll be able to retire. Mm -hmm. And the thing about it was that, you know, finally hit that goal. Kind of like you said, like when you hit the, the million dollar net worth and it's like, oh, well, this doesn't feel like how I expected it to. Right. And then I guess reality set in when I realized that this is going to be life for probably the next 30 years and it just didn't feel good. And right. that was when I started to look for yeah. <laughs> like other yeah. areas of fulfillment, I guess you could say kind of same thing, like what you're saying, like, this can't really be what, what the purpose this of life can't is. can't be life. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is man. Terrible. 100%. Like it, it wouldn't be worth living, but 100%. plenty of people do it. And, you know, it probably explains how so many people are unhappy. You see so much toxicity online, you know, social media and everything, just because people aren't living an authentic life, they're living the life that they think they're supposed to live. Yeah. Or not even. Yeah. Well, yeah. The life they think they're supposed to live a hundred percent. And why is it like that? Well, because of the, just the design system we live in. If you think about capitalism and again, this might be a little morbid, I'm sorry, but this is just how my brain thinks and I'm expressing these things and hopefully values derive from it. But if you think about capitalism, when are, when are people most valuable in capitalism in their twenties, in their thirties, in their forties and in their fifties? By the time you start hitting 60s and stuff like that, companies don't want to hire you. You're a liability. You're a health issue. You're a health hazard. You're old. You're probably out of date with technology. You're not able to pivot or move as fast on things. You know, like you've reached the end of your utility, if you will, within a capitalistic structure. How convenient that's when retirement accounts and everything are focused in your 60s and 70s after you've been chewed up and spit out by the capitalistic structure that is. And to clarify, I'm not villainizing capitalism. I think it's a very good tool. I think there's been tons of great innovation and technology. It's helped us move forward and help tons of people. But this idea of retirement is a very new concept to our species. Like our great, great grandparents, our great grandparents, our, our grandparents, parents, and us have had this idea of end of life security. Prior to that, people worked and worked and worked and worked and died. There was no retirement. There was no financial security. And so now I think we're starting to enter an era of realization, especially with younger generations that, um, why do I have to do this? I, um, this doesn't feel right. I'm not happy. This doesn't feel good to me. I, this whole idea, I'm 24. I got to work 40 more years and then I get like a social security check. No, I don't. And so I think, and so that's why I'm huge. I don't talk, I don't call it retirement. I unplugged at 31. I unplugged from a system that wasn't working for me. That was crushing my soul. That was not keeping me happy and content. And yeah, do I have as much money coming in as I did when I was working my corporate job? Absolutely not. Am I happier? Yep. Am I more content? Yep. 
Am I enjoying more of my day to day? Yep, a hundred percent. And that's what life's all about, man. Yeah, I love that you brought that up too about how even though the income is less, that was the most important thing. It's what came from being able to unplug, like you said. And uh, it reminds me of a book that I read called Four Hour Work Week, where it pretty much touches Paris, on that same principle. Book. Oh, see, so yeah, you, you've read it too. Oh, fantastic book. Yeah, it's definitely great. I, I just finished it maybe about a month ago. And one of the things that he talked about is, you know, just how much more valuable it is to, even if you're making less money, have it to where, you know, most of your time is free time because you can do whatever else you want in the rest of it. And if you want to find other means to like give you more income, as opposed to sticking to one for the whole 40 hours, you can do that working on building systems. He talked about like making programs and things like that to make it to where you have uh, automatic income. Yep. So it's, it's a great book. I would highly recommend that to anyone. I, that was yeah, interested in I, I'll second that a hundred percent. Anyone listening to this episode, both of us, a hundred percent. That's a great book. Um, you, you know, you mentioned about automating systems and things like that. One of the things that I've realized too, is there's really four types of wealth in the world. Okay. There's financial wealth, there's physical wealth, there's social wealth, and there's time wealth. Don't get me wrong. Social wealth is extremely important. So is financial wealth. And so is uh, physical wealth. You know, you can't rebuy your body. You got to take care of and respect your body. Financial wealth will help you get more time wealth and social wealth. Some of those are going to be genuine. Some of them aren't. That's just the reality of, of, of having a social network of people. Some friends are going to be true core people that you know are great friends. Some are going to be acquaintance. Some people are going to stab you in the back. That sucks, but that's part of having social wealth. And we need that as human beings. Human beings do not operate alone in a house. We need to talk and interact with other human beings. It enriches us. It enriches our perspective. It makes us laugh. It makes us cry. It makes us angry. It makes us happy. But throughout all of those wealths, the most important wealth you can have is time wealth. And how do you get time wealth in a capitalistic structure? Financial wealth. You need financial wealth. Well, let me rephrase that. You could have immediate time wealth, but the idea of living under a bridge and panhandling for money that doesn't sound as doesn't comfortable sound as appealing, I, yeah. <laughs> it does not sound appealing. So technically, could you? Yes. But because of this system we operate in, you really need to focus on that financial wealth to get that time wealth. And that's what I'm tying back into your automating system processes with the with the Tim Ferriss four hour work week book. That's a, you need to be automating these things, automate your investments, automate, commit to automating and purchasing a piece of real estate every five years. And by doing these things, you're creating the large financial wealth, which gets you the creme de la creme of life, which is time wealth. Man, I'm glad that this is something that we, that we got into, because I know when we talked about what we had mentioned in the episode this had never even come across my mind, but now that it's coming up, I think this is really great because this, from what you probably know, this is something that not a lot of people talk about or even think is possible, but there are plenty of nope. people out there doing stuff like what you're doing. Correct. And what Tim Ferriss is talking about. Yep. And I'm just on a platform letting people know, like, look, would I love to be as successful as Tim Ferriss? Sure. But is it, does it matter at this point in my life because I have enough passive income coming in? No. I'm doing this stuff because I love it. And if I can help change one, two, three, five, a thousand, a million lives, I don't care what that number is anymore for me anymore. I just want to help people understand they can design a life worth living and designing it the way they want to 
if they just take the time to start absorbing some of my content and applying themselves to this stuff. And one great thing about it too, is that a lot of the stuff people will want to add to their lifestyle, it's really not as expensive as they think it is. And so, you know, someone might, you know, scoff at somebody, you know, making, let's say 80K a year, just completely passive, like that's not enough money. But the thing about it is, uh, you know, to travel and everything like that, to be able to eat at nice restaurants, to go do different events, you don't need to be a millionaire to do that type of stuff. And so to have these systems, like what you're talking about, it can provide more than adequate income to live the type of lifestyle that people aspire for that you see, like the people on Instagram living, and you don't need all that money to be able to do it unless you want to have the materialistic stuff too, like the cars and, and the house and all that. But as far as the lifestyle, it's really not that expensive. And that's another thing too, you know, I've been talking a lot and focusing on, I'm not this monk. Like I drive a nice car. I drive a nice Mercedes, you know, I like, you know, nice fast cars and, you know, I live in a good house in a decent area, but I don't need a $150,000 car and I don't need a million dollar house because if I need those things, I need to stay in this capitalistic system and keep working longer. And so really just scaling back on that and understanding you have more than enough of what you need. Um, just really just, and then the other thing too, before I lose this thought, you mentioned something to the effect of Instagram and what people are doing on there. I think that's a very toxic thing that you need to learn to um, stop tapping the vein on so much because Instagram's a highlight reel. When Jennifer posts a beautiful picture while she's in some amazing Bay Area in Spain, you don't mm -hmm. see the fact that Jennifer's struggling with her relationship with her boyfriend who's cheating on her and she doesn't have a good relationship with her father and she's, you know, up and down crying every other weekend. You don't see that. All you see are the good things, the absolutely amazing things that are happening in people's lives. And that's just not reality. And so you need to understand that when you look at Instagram that like, okay, these are very brief experiences or points in time where people are having a good time. This isn't their life 24 seven, because I think people will look at that without that frame of reference and feel defeated or feel like they need to, they don't, they don't feel good about their life or alternatively like me, they're like, I need to go pursue more money. I need to go do more because I need to be able to do this stuff nonstop 24 seven. And that's just not a healthy mentality to have when it comes to social media. That's a great point, actually. And this is something that I had read about in a book called Digital Minimalization by, I mm. think it was by Cal Newport. What's this one called? I'm actually going to write this down. This sounds interesting. I think it was Digital Minimalization. Okay. I would look it up right now, but I don't want like no, you're typing fine. You're and fine. all that to pop up on the audio. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. I wrote it down. Uh, I'll figure it out. Yeah, I know it is a Cal Newport book. So if that's not the exact title, I'm sure you can find it just from typing in Digital Cal Newport. Okay. Sounds but, good. Um, it talks about that same thing that you were just mentioning about it being a highlight reel for people pretty much. And someone that's spending a lot of their free time on that and constantly making these comparisons. Meanwhile, they're working their, their day job. I'm sure it would make them feel like crap if they're yep. seeing these people that they went to school with or, or know posting these pictures from these different trips and, you know, showing all the highlights. They're thinking that it's their full life. Like they're thinking that's how it is every day. Yep. It's just a completely unrealistic way to live your life. And again, stop comparing yourself to other people. When you start doing that, like you'd be amazed at how happy you can just wake up and be every day. Does that mean I'm happy every day? No. Do I yearn for some things? Do Sometimes do I look at a car and I'm like, damn, that'd be cool to have. 
Yeah, sure. But my alternative is diving back into this soul crushing corporate structure stuff that I just don't want to do anymore. You know, and it's like, I'd rather have a $50,000 car. I'd rather have a $10,000 car and putz around in that and have my time freedom, my time wealth. So that way I can tinker around and do other things. And generally speaking, if you find people really pursuing their passions for one, two, three, four, five years, and they're not expecting money to come from it, guess what magically just tails behind it? Money. Because people like that energy. They like the fact that you're passionate about something. Um, Offering value too. And offering, yes, offering content value, whether you're an artist, a musician, you know, we're doing podcasting like you and myself. Um, people that truly love this stuff, they stay in it because they just love doing it. And usually it's just funny and uncanny how money does follow behind that. But unfortunately, because of the system we live in, we reverse that a lot. Oh, I need money now. I need to focus on money now. And that is unfortunately the sad reality. If you're pursuing your passion and your passion's whittling duck carvings, like I'm sure there's a market for that, but like to immediately quit your day job and go to start doing that next week and expect to put food on the table and stuff like that, it's probably not the best move. And it's, I'm not disagreeing. It sucks. We live in a world like that. But again, through building a financial base out like myself, not only are you able to pursue your passions, you can just say yes to everything. And if you're wrong, 90% of the time, it doesn't matter. Money's still coming in. And if you're able to keep saying yes to things, the things that want to say yes to you will ultimately find you. And that's your wealthiest life. I'm sure that this, um, I'm sure this perked the ears of a lot of people, what you just talked about. And one thing I'll say just to add to that, as we start to wrap up now with time running out, is that anyone that is interested in seeing how they could turn their passion or whatever into something where they're offering value to other people and make money from it, I would say check out a book called The Go-Giver. I forgot what the author, mm, I forgot who the one. author is. I forgot yeah. who the author is too, but I read that one a while ago. That's a great one too. Yeah. Cause it kind of touches on this type of stuff where I think one of the examples in there was a woman that made like some really good coffee. She just liked to make coffee and she would source the beans and all that. And just from her figuring out ways to offer value to other people and get it out there, she was able to do her passion and have it to where that was her full-time income. And so that's just something for them to kind of think about. A hundred percent. That'd be a great place to start when you're identifying kind of what your wealthiest life could look like. Because again, if you're working some job you hate and you're making a million dollars a year, you're not living your wealthiest life. You're only focused on the financial wealth aspect. Your health is probably, your health wealth is probably suffering from it because of stress and anxiety and being unhappy. That's real outside of just the physical, you know, obesity things that happen with, you know, working long hours and not being able to get out and move around. Um, your social wealth is probably suffering. So you need to encompass all four of these wealths. And, the, you know, as we're wrapping this up, the funny thing I'm finding is I've asked all different types of people, gut instinct, don't overthink it. How much passive money do you need coming in to, to just kind of just not worry about anything and like live your best life? And I'm, and you know, people start thinking about it and I'm like, quit thinking about it. What is your gut instinct? And most people, regardless of what income, where they come from, what they're doing in life, what their age is, all of them have fallen within this general range of six to $8,000 passively coming in a month. I know that sounds like a lot, but if you start now, you can get to like where I'm at. It, and it doesn't, it comes in all different shapes and sizes. It comes from a side hustle. It comes from, you know, buying a piece of real estate, buying two pieces of real estate, pushing money into a traditional brokerage account, doing this, that, and the other. And regardless of whether you're making $18,000, which yes, that is how much I made one year 
once when I was younger to making $180,000. Yes, that is how much I made. That was my highest income earning year, one year out of this entire decade. And in between that, I made 40, I made 60, I made 82, I made 90, I made 120. I didn't make a ton of money to begin with, but you need to start these habits to build and grow to get where I've gotten, where you have enough passive money coming in. And now you can just literally go do whatever you want. And I'm living proof you can do it within a decade. And so for those people that are interested in this and want to hear more, where can they find you? Yeah. So I'm on, I'll say my name once because it's long and then just apply it to everything else. So you can follow me at Zach Jurgensen, Z-A-C. J-U-E-R-G-E-N-S-E-N. My website is also spelled the same, ZachJurgensen.com. You can also find me on Clubhouse and Wisdom. Same thing, Zach Jurgensen. And then um, you can tune into my podcast. Podcast is called DIY Wealth. It syndicates on everything, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, whatever. And then additionally, I have a Patreon account. My Patreon account has all of my positions on an Excel spreadsheet that I update monthly. Um, I just took six new crypto positions this month. I updated all my patrons on that. It has all my real estate deals, how much money I needed to get into the deal, my cash flows, things like that, what my retirement accounts are invested in. I mean, I give you everything and you can just mirror it. Additionally, if you want one-on-one coaching with that, um, I do that monthly with you as well. Some people, they just want access to the investments and just want to mirror what I'm doing. Other people, they really do want to drill down on a budget and do a budgeting. That's $10.56 a month. Why $10.56 a month? I literally went over to a Starbucks. I bought a large Frappuccino and I bought a ham and Swiss sandwich and including tax in the state of Arizona. That's what a Starbucks breakfast costs. So I'm asking you to forego one Starbucks breakfast a month and I will help build your wealth for you. I already helped one girl save $720 in her budget. Um, I'm helping another individual get more comfortable with brokerage platforms and trading. So like I am providing real value to people at this point. And if you want to talk to any of those patrons, they'd be happy to talk to you about that value proposition, but I'm trying to make it, I've made it cheaper than a standard Netflix account. So that's the ticket to entry, I guess, but it also shows me that you're being serious about this too. Hey, sounds good. Well, I appreciate you sharing all of that. And I'm sure that you'll offer a lot of value to the people that come from this and decide to check out some of your stuff. And so once again, thank you for coming on to the show. Like I said, I think you offered a lot of value and looking forward to checking out some of your stuff uh, for myself as well. No, I appreciate you having me. You've been a very generous host um, and some fantastic questions, even a, a handful that I've never even encountered. I really hope, you know, the people listening to the improvement podcast, you know, are really going to get a lot out of this and keep in touch, ask me questions as well. And, you know, I look forward to seeing, you know, what you can build on your end as well. All right. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'll definitely make sure to keep in touch. All right, then Zach, take care. Thanks. You take care now too.